Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. People keep asking if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. Yes. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 42, uh, the John Wick trilogy. Um, So you guys knew that this was coming because it's Keanu Reeves and I cannot get by, uh, you know, in the many months of podcasting that I've been podcasting without talking about Keanu Reeves at least once per episode. Um, So this episode is literally... It's full on Keanu Reeves. It's three Keanu Reeves movies for the price of one. And it's peak modern Keanu. And it's it's pretty unparalleled actually on this podcast that I would talk about a trilogy of movies. Um, I've talked about two movies in one episode um, in Aladdin because I talked about the original. I talked about the remake. But this is the first time that I've talked about a trilogy of movies. Um, And John Wick obviously as a trilogy was a sleeper hit of a first movie that just kind of snowballed and is now just phenomenal uh, in its size and its scope. Um, And I felt like they needed talking about as an entity, you know, considering the the weight of the character and the world that these movies have created. Um, And John Wick as a character is known as the boogeyman. Uh, He's a man of myth and legend, uh, a man who's deadlier than the stories would lead you to believe. Um, And who better to welcome on as guests when talking about myths and legends than Laurel and Derek from The Midnight Myth. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. Hey, hi. Thank you for having us, Em. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited to have you guys on. Uh, Just to talk about everything to do with John Wick. This is just such a, a, a wonderful achievement for this podcast, really, to have The Midnight Myth on Verbal Diorama. I'm just... I'm so excited, I can't tell you. <laughs> oh, that's so kind. We are too. We're so excited. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about this movie. I've loved it since the first one. I've loved all three, and I am so pumped to be here. Yeah. 
Oh, it's it's just going to be so much fun. Um, and I know that you guys, we've we've talked for a little while about you guys coming on Verbal Diorama. And obviously I went on your podcast, The Midnight Myth. I believe, I think it was November last year, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, for, that's right. For Labyrinth. And that was just so much fun and so very eventful as well. I think it's <laughs> it's a recording process that none of us will forget uh, in in a hurry because it uh, it was quite an eventful uh show uh well two shows really that we uh and we that's recorded. all i will say about that uh, yeah yeah but um but this is only going to be the once so uh well as long as everything's recording it's going to be the once so yeah what i wanted to do um sort of in the interim was just kind of to give you guys just a bit of an opportunity to sort of you can obviously plug your show and everything later on but I just wanted to get you to maybe uh tell everyone a little bit about the midnight myth um for anyone who's listening to this who maybe doesn't know who you guys and who your podcast is yeah well we're so happy to be here uh we're the midnight myth and what Derek and I do on our podcast is we take popular movies television and literature and we sort of extract the mytho uh, mythological, historical, and philosophical themes therein. So we love to get really deep, really down and dirty with things like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and Star Wars and figure out what's really going on underneath the surface. Uh, and we have a lot of fun doing it. Beautiful. And, yeah, I agree. That's, that's, that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is pretty perfect. And, and I'm not even joking. And anyone who follows me on Twitter or, or anything will know how much I love you guys because your podcast is honestly one of the best podcasts that I listen to um, and you know this because I tell you like all the time um, that you know you you guys always inspire me to you know be be better you know at this um, and I was like there's there's literally no topic that seems as apt when we are talking about like I say about about myths really because this is a character that's it's not based on any real myth, but he has this kind of law behind him, just kind of based around his name. Like every time a character mentions the name John Wick, everyone else in this movie is like, whoa, you're talking about John Wick. Like It's just and, and the way the movies kind of build up this legend, uh, I find quite fascinating. Um, so to be honest, we're not going to really kind of dilly dally or anything like that. We need to kind of jump straight in because guys, we've got three movies to talk about. So, um, so yeah, let's talk about the John Wick trilogy. Let's um, do it. Let's do it. Right. I've got synopsis for each of the movies. Um, what I thought we'd do is um, we'll go sort of down the cast uh, first because I've kind of, there's a lot of cast members that appear in all three movies. There's some cast members that appear in two and then there's some that appear in just the one. So I've kind of split the cast between the three movies. Um, but obviously the main guy in this movie is the one, the only, Mr. Keanu Reeves. Uh, my future husband, you know, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm pretty sure he knows by now. Uh, but if he doesn't, then it's out there now. I think he's such a great actor. Um, I mean, he's not, I wouldn't say he's the best actor in the world um in a sense that he he picks his roles very wisely and I think that the role of John Wick I think is so suited to him and the way that he portrays this character um and also it's a bit I feel like very much with 
John Wick specifically is Keanu Reeves is the main person in the film and it kind of feels a little bit sometimes like does anyone actually else star in these movies because it is so focused on Keanu um and obviously I guess we can talk about him and uh you know the character of John Wick specifically in in a bit of detail later but um so the ensemble cast um for all three so starting with the first John Wick um uh, Michael Nickvist as Vigo Tarasov Alfie Allen as Yosef Tarasov, Adrian Palicki as Miss Perkins, Bridget Moynihan as Helen Wick, Ian McShane as Winston, John Leguizamo as Aurelio, Lance Reddick as Sharon, and Willem Dafoe as Marcus. Um, and then moving on to the second movie, uh, the cast added Common as Cassian, Lawrence Fishburne as the Bowery King, Ricardo Scamacchio as Santino D'Antonio and Ruby Rose as Ares. And then finally, following the third movie, it added Halle Berry as Sophia, Mark Daskaskos as Zero, Asia Kate Dillon as The Adjudicator, Angelica Houston as The Director, Jason Mantzoukas as TikTok Man and Jerome Flynn as Barada. And that's just kind of the, the main cast. I mean, there's loads of other characters that I just haven't even added to that list. So it, it's there's a lot of people uh, in these movies. So let's just go through some quick synopsis. So I'll just go through all three of them and then we can we can just blast through, guys, and just talk about whatever we want. That's um, awesome. Just, well, obviously John Wick related. I mean, we can have a chat if you want, but ideally let's keep it John Wick related. <laughs> uh, so the first John Wick came out in 2014. I'm up. I'm up. You like that, huh? Nice ride. Thanks. How much? Excuse me? How much for the car? She's not for sale. You have good day, sir. I lost everything. That dog was a final gift from my dying wife. Jonathan. You got out once. You dip so much as a pinky back into this pond, you may find something reaching out to pull you back in. It's personal. Where'd you get that car? What does it matter? It's not what you did, son. It's who you did it to. The nobody? But nobody. It's John Wick. You working again? No, just sorting some stuff out. Task your crew. How many? As many as you have. Hey, John. I thought I'd let myself in. People keep asking if I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. I'm not afraid of John Wick. 
Retired assassin John Wick lives a secluded life in suburban New Jersey after the death of his beloved wife, who gives him a puppy as her final gift to him and to give him something to love and something to live for after she's gone. Yosef Tarasov, the son of John's former employer, mob boss Vigo Tarasov, becomes enamoured with his vintage car and decides to steal it. He murders John's puppy in the process, prompting John to come out of retirement and take revenge on Yosef. So the first John Wick movie was directed by Chad Stahelski. It was co-directed by John Leach, uh, but only Stahelski is credited. Um, both of them worked with Reeves as stunt doubles on The Matrix. Um, and the movie was written by Derek Kolstad. Uh, interestingly, I also found out it was co-produced by Eva Longoria, which was a I wasn't expecting Eva Longoria to be a producer on the movie, but she is. Um, it is the only film in the trilogy that was released by Summit Entertainment. Uh, moving on to John Wick Chapter 2, which came out in 2017. Welcome to Rome. Is this a formal event or a social affair? Social. How many buttons? Two. And what style? Tactical. Mr. Wick. Do enjoy your party. How good to see you again so soon. You have no idea what's coming. You want a war? Or do you want to just give me a gun? not very good at retiring. I'm working on it. Immediately after the events of the first movie, John recovers his stolen car and is visited by Santino D'Antonio, whom John owes a blood debt to use his skills to murder his sister and get her seat on the high table, which would make him the most powerful criminal in New York. John refuses, which is against the rules, and is forced to travel to Rome to undertake D'Antonio's bidding. D'Antonio then offers a $7 million reward for the death of John Wick to avenge the death of the sister he had killed. I hope that makes sense, because it doesn't when I'm saying it. But it anyway, does. it yeah. does. Okay, yeah. that works. <laughs> Again, the movie was directed by Chad Stahelski. Um, solo directed by Chad Stahelski this time and it was again written by Derek Kolstad and then finally John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum came out in 2019 You have no idea what's coming Mr. Wick broke the rules 
trust you understand the repercussions if he survives. John Wick, excommunicado, is now in effect. You shouldn't be here. Nice suit. Good to see you too. I need your help. After this, we are less than even. There's no escape for you. The high table wants your life. Would you help set the mood for our new guest? Let us begin. Our services still off limits to me. What do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. You think you can take John Wick? You've got a nasty surprise coming. I've been looking forward to meeting you for a long time. And so far, you haven't disappointed. We can keep this up as long as you'd like. But this only ends one way. This for what? Because of a puppy? Wasn't just a puppy. Now officially excommunicado, John Wick has no sanctuary and is on the run with a $14 million bounty on his head and every assassin in the world after him. John is forced to ally with old friends to get back into the high table's favour before suffering the ultimate betrayal. Uh, again, directed by Chad Stahelski, and this time written by Derek Kolstad, Shay Hatton, Chris Collins, and Mark Abrams. I want to start with you guys, Derek and Laurel, and I just want to ask a simple question. It's only because I really want to get it out of the way, because I feel like with a set of movies like this, there's so much to love um, and so much to be just enamoured by, just the sheer kind of skill that you see on screen. Um, so I thought it would be a really good idea to kind of get out of the way the things that we don't like about this trilogy. Um, you know, anything about kind of specific movies in the trilogy or, or anything that you don't like. I have something that I don't like. Um, I, I think we might be in agreement with the thing that we all don't like. But, um, but yeah, I thought I'd ask you guys the question. Um, is there anything you don't like? Yeah, I mean, I'll preface this by saying I adore all three of these movies. I absolutely love them, and I love every second of all of them. But going through the exercise and preparing for this podcast with you, Anne, which, by the way, thank you again for having us, I really thought the casting of Lawrence Fishburne, while perfect, opens up this sort of cheeky matrix nod that we see in the third movie when Keanu Reeves, John Wick says, I need guns, more guns mm -hmm. directly quoting the matrix. And for me, for like a series of films that are so stylized that are so involved in their own mythology, 
it felt a little weird to see them pull another pop culture reference into it because the John Wick world is so contained to me. It is so natural. Like, I really believe this world of super criminals and complex uh, hierarchies and this entire shadow universe that exists alongside with us. I'm like, did they all see the Matrix? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> and that was the one moment in the third movie in particular that I got kind of removed from the actual journey John was going through. It'd be the first thing I'd point to saying like, you know, I didn't really like that. That's interesting, Derek, because I really, I, I tend to like uh, the Matrix nods because I do feel like the movies are um, often very cognizant of the references they're making to other cinema, and it's really hard to avoid uh, the Matrix comparisons when you're casting Keanu in such an action-heavy role. So I like it, but I think that's fair that you felt a little bit pulled out by it. For me, um, Em, I think I'm on the same page as you in that it's really, really, really hard to watch a puppy die. Um, but yeah. I, I don't know if I can say that I don't like that. Um, I mean, I hate watching it. I would love to fast forward it every time I watch this again, but for me, that's just the core of his character. Um, and it's so deeply emotional and so affecting that I actually think it's one of the best, um, best things about these movies. If there's one thing that I don't like, um, it's that I think the later movies, while they get more stylized and you know better production value and they grow the lore and they grow the world and the universe and get you know more affecting in a lot of ways i feel like they distance from the character and from the raw emotion of like what happens when this thing that you love is taken from you i think that's really the only thing that uh leaves me a little bit empty in the the uh second and third movies i i understand where you're coming from derek with the the matrix references um i think it does sometimes have this uh, this ability to kind of take you out of this world, um, but I, I kind of I'm more in agreement with Laurel, and it's it's just a nice little nod. I think if they took it further, and uh, John Wick, after he said he wanted more guns, he went whoa, you know. I think that might take it a step too far. Yeah, and be excellent like, to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean. John Wick's not really going to be excellent to any of the, the high table, is he? But um, right. <laughs> it's just kind of against his uh, his whole purpose. But but yeah, I I think having Lawrence Fishburne, I think because Lawrence Fishburne is he immediately adds this kind of uh, this gravitas, I think, to the Bowery King that I I think it would be very difficult for another actor to kind of have that because obviously him and Keanu have this history. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think they overdo it. I think if they'd done another line or any other kind of nod to that series, it would have been a step too far. Um, and going to what you said, Laurel, about the puppy, um, I am quite vocal about the fact that I cannot watch that scene. And whilst I would like to be able to watch that scene because of the context of, well, this is what triggers him into taking uh, vengeance. Um, and, you know, I, I can completely understand why the character would, would do that. Um, I have such a visceral response to that um, because there's a bit of a story behind why uh, I struggle to watch it so much in that my, uh, I have a cat at the moment. Everyone knows my cat. Her name's Jess. She's normally very loud in the background of my podcast, but she's shut out right now. Um, 
but um, I haven't just had one cat. Um, back in the day, I had two cats. And um, obviously, John Wick came out in 2014. I didn't see it at the cinema, um, but it came out on a streaming service in 2015. Late 2015, early 2016, it would have been. Um, but a couple of, like a week before Christmas 2015, um, my other cat, his name was Alfie, um, he got very sick, all of a sudden, really, really sick. He collapsed, he started having seizures, and basically he got rushed to the vets. And um, then, you know, he made a miraculous recovery and everything was great. And he stayed in the vets overnight. And then they said, oh, yeah, no, he, you can pick him up in the morning. And the morning I was due to pick him up, um, he had another episode and he died uh, there and then. Um, and it was probably one of the most awful experiences of my life to be told, oh, you know, you can go and pick your cat up. He's fine. Um, and then, you know, him dying so very suddenly. Um, and they said it was a brain aneurysm and that, you know, oh, it was very peaceful, like he wouldn't have known. But still, you you kind of have this, you know, you go through this period of grief. And obviously, because it was Christmas, and um, after Christmas, I thought, oh, there's this movie, John Wick. Yeah, I, I fancy a movie like that, you know. I need something to get my mind off this. And obviously, uh, I can laugh about it now, but back then I couldn't. Um, I sat down to watch this movie, and 14 minutes in, this thing happens. And I'm literally the most unconsolable you will ever see. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed for 20, 30 minutes. And I just, I, I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with it. Um, and every time I think of that scene now, I, I think of how I felt. And I really genuinely did try. I sat a couple of days ago and I thought, right, I'm going to put John Wick on going to sit and I'm going to watch it I'm not going to stop it I'm just going to watch it the whole way through I can do this like it's fine and I sat and I um you get to the scene where the dog is barking in the night and John Wick wakes up and he goes down the stairs and he sees the two guys and then I started getting these like heart like my heart started racing and I started to feel like just genuinely very distressed <laughs> and I, I can't explain it why I was, you know, just having these very visceral kind of feelings. And I think it was because I knew it was coming. And I just like paused it and I was like, I need to pause it. I can't carry on watching. And I kind of sat there for a little bit and I was like, no, 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 I need to watch this. I need to get through it. But, you know, just like when your your brain is kind of just saying, no, 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 don't do it. Don't, do not put yourself through it. And I ended up just... For fast forwarding to the next chapter like to 16 minutes so I think the, the scene only lasts a couple of minutes so I ended up 16 minutes in sort of after that uh and I I I genuinely tried yeah um but I I I couldn't I know it was just it felt like it genuinely felt like uh oh like a feeling of I'm gonna jump out of a plane you know that sort of feeling of just like fear and just like a really intense, like anxiousness of just watching a scene. And I, I just can't do it. And I really genuinely tried and I can't. And I, I do understand that this is the motivation. This is, this is the primary motivation of, uh, you know, yeah, his, his gets his car stolen and he's pissed. 
but the puppy is the real kind of emotional crux because the audience doesn't care that his car's been stolen because it's a car. It's just a car. A car can be replaced. But when you have that love for an animal, you know, it's, yeah, it's not the same as the love between human beings, uh, but it is a very, uh, it's a very strong attachment to uh, an animal that lives in your home and that you look after and you nurture. And um, so I think that from an audience point of view, everyone who watches that will then understand why he goes off and he seeks vengeance because you would, <laughs> well, you wouldn't, but you would. Um, but I, uh, I can't watch it. Uh, yeah. And I, I will never, ever, I don't think I will ever be able to watch that scene um, because of the... Because of that day, the, when I, I kind of sat down and said, oh, I'm just going to watch an action movie and, and try and get my... Because it, it must have only been a week or a couple of weeks after I lost him that I watched this film. And it's so vividly stuck in my brain now, uh, that feeling of just heartbreak, just complete and utter heartbreak. And, you know, don't even get me started on the fact that the puppy crawls to him. You know, I it, that that is just... That will set me right off. And everyone knows that I cry at everything. So, but so do but, I. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it wasn't just a, a normal, oh, this is a sad movie. I'm going to cry at this. Um, because I cry at lots of sad movies. This was proper. I've never, I don't think I've ever experienced like sobbing just uncontrollably like I did at John Wick. And, it is and brutal. Yeah. It's. Yeah, it, it was not the right time to watch John Wick. Had I known about that scene, um, I might have turned around and said, nah, I don't, I don't think I'm up for that. But because I thought it was just a standard action movie, I thought it would be okay. Um, but it wasn't. So, um, so yeah, well, I think narratively, the, the puppy scene is important for, for in the context of not just John Wick, the first movie, but, but everything, really, um, is essentially, and it keeps coming back to it, the, the fact that someone's, you know, killed his dog. It's something that I, I wouldn't, it's difficult. I don't like it, but I understand why it's in there, if that makes sense. I think it does, because there's, I mean, there's really nothing uh, more more motivational for revenge than like the harming of an innocent uh, and Daisy represents so much for us within the story. She represents a return to routine. She represents innocence, obviously. She represents sort of the soul of his wife and the love that they had and the things that he's already lost, this opportunity to grieve with somebody. Uh, and that's all taken away from us. And then you layer on there that there is like, I mean, for a lot of us, there is a personal uh, remembrance. I think, uh, you know, I can remember, you know, losing my pet when I was young and how just gutting that is and you 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 put that on top of this character who's already grieving and it's it you just want to blow the world apart um and so it's it's hard to watch and it can make you feel like physically sick but it is like so important for the character mm. yeah you know you know marcus says to john in one of the first lines of dialogue when he's burying his wife that there's no rhyme or reason to this life and he is stating, this is all just chaos. Anything that can happen will happen. And then John suffers this violent crime. And in a world, in a universe of John Wick, where human life is relatively cheap, it can be bought and sold and bartered at high tables and 
everyone is a super assassin. And a lot of faceless, nameless uh, uh, goons. That just get mm-hmm. killed without emotion, pity, or hesitation by our, our hero who we are cheering on. Mm-hmm. The death of a puppy is something that even an action movie setting up a world where human life can be killed in a second in creative and sometimes fun ways. I know that sounds pretty sick to say, but everyone will feel that that grief because at some point in time, we've all loved an animal, at least most of us have. And yeah, well, I, I appreciate you sharing that too, Em. That was very emotional. It's always going to be very much a part of the experience of watching the movie for me. Um, but I, I don't want it to kind of sour uh, the experience of watching the trilogy because I, I genuinely enjoy watching these movies. Uh, you know, take out that two minutes. Uh, <laughs> uh, whilst, you know, narratively, it makes a hell of a lot of sense because you, you, you could definitely argue that had that not happened, if it was literally just oh, uh, you know, a mob boss's son has stolen my car, I'm going to go out for revenge. You'd be like, well, hang on a second. Like, that makes no sense. Like, he's stolen your car and you're going off and you're killing a bunch of people for what reason now? Um, So it had to be something that was so relatable uh, to the general public and and have emotion um, attached to it. Um, And... I'd argue as well that I'm I'm actually really glad that they that they only do it once because I feel like if they did it again the audience would not accept it. Oh, I would riot. Uh, I I would riot. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um I mean we can obviously talk about the third movie a bit later but there's a there's obviously a scene in the third movie where uh, a dog is shot at. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing that in the cinema and just go, no, 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 no. They can't do this again. They cannot do this again to this dog. Um, and obviously it turns out that the dog is absolutely fine uh, because it's wearing a uh, bulletproof vest. Of course. Um, but I, I, if if that dog had genuinely died in John Wick 3, I would have walked out of the cinema. I would just be like, no, I am not here for this. You've killed one puppy. You cannot kill any other innocent, defenseless animals in this trilogy, like that is the cardinal rule, and I and it and I think they will stick to it. They 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 have a formula, um, and and it's a it's a winning formula. So I think it is definitely something that they are gonna stick to. One of the things that I wanted to specifically talk about, um, and like I say, I don't think we should focus too much on sort of each individual film, but I think we should kind of talk about it a little bit. Um, obviously, we've talked about the the introduction to John. Um, and the death of his dog and the whole um, revenge sort of after that. But obviously the, the, the first John Wick movie um, is essentially a standalone movie because it was never set up to be a trilogy. Um, you could watch John Wick, um, you could get to the end of John Wick and it is very self-contained. It's stylized, but it's not as stylized as maybe some of the later movies because like I say, I think they found a formula and they kind of they kind of went with it. But one thing that the the first John Wick movie does very well is it sets up this legend of John Wick. Because when the movie starts, all you know is his name is John Wick. You, you don't really know anything about him. The things that you learn about him are the things that other characters tell you. So other, the other characters will say... 
um, like they mentioned the um, that he killed three guys with a pencil. Um, and you kind of get this image in your head of, of this guy. They call him the boogeyman. Um, they specifically call him Baba Yaga. And it really does a great job, I think, of setting up the, the legend, I guess, um, of, of a man that looks like a, a pretty good-looking, handsome, uh, you know, husband material kind of guy. Um, he's obviously going through a, a, a grieving period with his um, passing of his wife. But the whole movie is based on the fact that Yosef does the worst possible thing that he could do because they make a point of saying, no, this isn't just any man. You know, this is John Wick. Um, and I guess I kind of wanted to speak to you guys specifically because you guys are the the king and queen of, uh, you know, myths and legend. Um, I specifically wanted to talk to you guys about the whole kind of Baba Yaga reference. Yeah, as well. absolutely. Um, and it's, it's based a lot, I think, in... Um, the, the kind of legend of the, the movie about like Baba Yaga and the boogeyman and everything, it brings to my mind kind of a lot of Slavic folklore because I think when we learn more about John Wick, we learn that he's from um, Belarus right, originally. Yeah. The whole Baba Yaga thing and, and the boogeyman, um, like can you kind of shed any light on kind of the, the whole kind of myths and legend around that? Because I think it would be really interesting for everyone to kind of know well what what is what who is Baba Yaga what is Baba Yaga everyone's heard of the terminology Baba Yaga but what is it so yeah I would love to talk a little bit about Baba Yaga um I think a lot of people are sort of familiar with who she is uh and she's kind of an interesting thing to set up against John Wick because it's not the natural comparison that you would want to make um Baba Yaga is a crone she is an old witch from Russian folklore and she has some uh, equivalents in other Slavic folklore, like I know in Czech she's Yezhibaba uh, or other similar names, um, but it's used interchangeably in the movie with Boogeyman, and when they say Baba Yaga, uh, they usually translate it on the screen to Boogeyman, so it's like they're using these interchangeably. I think it's possible that the screenwriter may have misused the word in the first place because there is a Slavic Boogeyman who's more traditional, like he spirits away your children and is a male figure named Babaika, uh, which roughly translates to the sack man. So I think it's definitely possible that they got that a little bit wrong, but they have definitely committed to it in later movies. So Baba Yaga, like I said, is a crone. Uh, she really starts to take shape in the 18th and 19th centuries, but almost certainly has older origins because she has so many equivalents. Um, and she sits, uh, she lives in this house that sits on chicken legs in the forest and she rides into the night in a flying mortar with a pestle as an oar. Um, and one of her most famous appearances is in uh, the story of Vasilisa the Beautiful, which is sort of like a Russian Cinderella. And there's actually an illustration of Vasilisa that shows up in uh, Parabellum in the book that John uh, takes out of the library. So they've definitely doubled down on this Baba Yaga comparison. Um, but she can be a sort of villainous figure who takes children or who punishes children, much like a boogeyman would, but it's important to note that in the folklore, she can be a villain or a helper. She can be very ambiguous in terms of her morals. And I think that is a good, um, a good frame of reference for John too, because he's our hero, right? So we are rooting for him and we think that his vengeance is justified, at least in this first movie, but 
you know, he's a killer. He's a ruthless killer. So he doesn't really land in this like good camp or bad camp. Uh, and it's very hard to sort of morally get your head around him. So he definitely takes that kind of ambiguous Baba Yaga role, despite not being, you know, a crone who rides in a, in a mortar and pestle. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for going into that history of, of Baba Yaga. Um, just to kind of uh, take it back, I, um, as we're recording this, because we're actually recording this over Easter weekend. So thank you guys for making your Easter weekend uh, available. I mean, obviously, it's not like we're doing anything else because everyone's social distancing. Everyone is uh, isolating right now because of coronavirus. Um, but uh, thank you anyway. Um, but my most recent episode that I, I put out was Hellboy. Um, and uh, whilst the 2004 movie doesn't reference Baba Yaga, the uh, 2019 remake does. Um, That's and right, it's actually, yeah. um, I think personally, it's one of the best scenes in that otherwise quite bad movie, uh, the, the 2019 remake, I mean, um, where the, the 2019 Hellboy goes to visit Baba Yaga and you see the house on the chicken legs um, and obviously the, the character of Baba Yaga in the movie is essentially a, an old crone with, uh, uh, she, it's, it's actually, I think it's probably one of the best scenes in the entire movie. I think the makeup is really good. The effects are really good. I mean, it's completely out of place, I think, in the movie and the rest of the movie is not great. Go and see 2004 Hellboy. It's so much better. Oh um, yeah, it's so good. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, I think that, is probably uh, the most notable uh, recent attempt to show actual Baba Yaga on screen. I mean, obviously, I, I'm talking like, you know, major Hollywood motion pictures kind of thing. Um, but it is interesting that, because um, I, I didn't know, what what did you say the alternative was? The sack man? What was he called? Yeah, Babaika. It's uh, B-A-B-A-Y-K-A. Or Bubak in Czech or Belarusian. So it definitely, like, it, it's part of that same folklore soup. And, like, Baba Yaga can be a sort of boogeyman figure, um, but it, it's not as obvious. I kind of like that they lean into it and they eventually, like, totally embrace uh, this character because she is very ambiguous uh, and she is a kind of liminal figure. She's also, like, she's a patron of the forest. She knows all of the animals, so she has this deep connection with the forest creatures, and obviously John Wick is heavily associated with dogs, not just through Daisy, but throughout the entire uh, film series. So we're once again sort of forging this connection of this character who lives in multiple worlds and has a connection with dogs or animals especially. Hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. It does make you wonder whether they accidentally referenced Babylon, right, or whether right. they actually meant to reference... Um, I'm sorry, the name has completely gone out of my Babaika, head. Babaika, um, yeah. Babaika. Because it does sound very similar. It does, uh, yeah. Like you say, they've, they've kind of gone with the Baba Yaga references now. And I think it's kind of become very synonymous with the character and with, with the movies now. The whole, you know, Baba Yaga, Boogeyman. Um, the fact that he's referenced throughout um, the whole uh, trilogy as that character. And obviously they do attempt to talk about the, the myth of this character in the first movie, but the actual world building and the rules specifically come into play sort of more on the second and third movies, whereas as they expand this universe, it kind of goes from just being 
located in one place. So you've got the Continental in New York and for it solely based in New York to becoming uh, worldly, you know. And in the second movie, we travel to Rome and in the third movie, we travel to Morocco. So it kind of uh, gets bigger, the world of, of John Wick universe, which interestingly, I, I was uh, researching on the internet and, uh, and obviously um, there's... A lot of information on uh, certain pages, uh, you know, like Wikipedia and stuff like that. But one of the things that actually uh, tickled me a little bit was um, the actual um, John Wick wiki is just called John Wiki, which just makes <laughs> so much sense to have That's so a John good. Wiki. Um, but the one thing that um, this movie does specifically is it kind of sets up this. Um, very kind of hyper-realistic look that, that each movie kind of elaborates even more on because obviously these movies get more expensive uh, as we go and we'll talk about figures and stuff later but it, it's very kind of, the colouring is very neon it, it's very, uh, it feels very New York it, the first movie feels very set in New York with all these kind of very neon colours very, um, you know, lots of blue lighting and um it's it's obviously shot in such a way to make the the violence feel very sort of realistic but very stylistic as well um and like i say it's something that each movie kind of expands on um and violence is obviously something that's kind of a theme of the movie and each movie kind of tends to get a little bit more violent but um for this movie specifically um obviously john he starts the movie in retirement and he comes out of retirement to enact this revenge. Um, but I just, I guess I just kind of wanted to ask you guys, and, and it's kind of maybe a theme sort of throughout, um, but specifically in the first movie, because I feel like the second and third movies is he, he does things out of necessity because he has to, because he has markers and he has blood oaths and, and all of this stuff. But do you feel like... Obviously, with his retirement, he settled down with, with a beautiful wife um, who unfortunately uh, passes away from an illness. Um, and he has a choice to make. Does he go back into this this world that he wanted out of or, or does, he, does, he, does he basically go back into it or does he stay out of it? And he chooses to go back into it and he opens up this, this massive can of worms. But do you guys think from looking at the character of John Wick and what we know of John Wick do you feel like it's something that he actually misses like he actually loves this life he chose to step away but now he kind of has nothing else um he's lost his wife he's lost his puppy the last thing that was linked to his wife do you think that he actually wants to be this person he wants to be the boogeyman um, or is he, do you think he is genuinely just doing it out of necessity? And that's a really, really big question. You know, I look at the first movie, one of the pivotal scenes to John's character is when he gets captured um, and he is there and he is being essentially held against his will. And, um, oh God, I'm blanking on the Russian officer's name. Vigo. Vigo, yes. Thank you. Um, Vigo says that he and John are the same and that they are cursed men and that God set John against him just as, as God uh, took his wife away. The things that they did 
before the events of this movie took place, fundamentally cursed them in the eyes of God and that they must now be trapped in this world of violence. I think if I look at that scene, and to answer your question in a very long-winded way here, um, I definitely think John wants to be a man of peace. John wants to be a man who can live in a beautiful house with a family and that he can live comfortably and honestly. And I do think he genuinely wants to leave it all behind. There certainly is a part of his character who is so skilled at killing that at some point in time he had to enjoy it. But I do believe that part of him is in the past. And I think if he really did enjoy it in the way that, you know, Miss Perkins enjoys it, or in the way that Santiago enjoys it in the second movie, um, he wouldn't be a character we could all root for, at least for myself, I could say. I couldn't root for him if he was just simply, there was a part of him that just loved being a badass super assassin who's unstoppable. I do think his vengeance is personal, and I do think on that level we could say, does he take pleasure out of it? And certainly he does. But it's worth noting that when he gets Yosef cornered, he doesn't take his time. He just pulls the trigger and walks away. And it's almost like an empty revenge. It's totally unceremonious. And there's no like, I finally got you. Uh, this is for, you know, killing my dog and stealing my car. It's just like, yeah, well, you angered the boogeyman. And now the boogeyman's coming to take the child from the father. And next, I've got to go kill the father. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Derek. I, I do see that, like, John is a character who's sort of struggling against his own nature. And for me, rather than, like, him secretly yearning to be back in this world, it feels like penance. Uh, it feels like we're he's motivated back into it by vengeance, which is deep and which is sort of addicting. Like, he, he gets addicted to that sense of vengeance and of being the wronged party and the victim uh, and getting back at the world that dealt that hand to him. But now I feel like the idea of going back to the life of peace means he's stuck alone with that emptiness and has to really face the feelings of the loss of his wife. So now it feels like everybody he takes down is just a, either a distraction or just maybe one more piece of penance so that I can finally dig myself out of the hole that I've, I've dug. Yeah. Um, it, it's not rational, but it, it, that's what it feels like to me. He has a job to do, and that job is to get vengeance, and that vengeance is, as he articulates, it's vengeance for his grief because he was able to heal and that was taken away from him. And that job means he will get everyone in the way between him and that vengeance. And in the first movie, though, it sets up a lot of Slavic folklore. The second movie really does a lot of um, Greek folklore, Greek mythology in it. There's also a through line of all three is that this movie's very, these movies are very Catholic. And you mentioned that he has to fight his nature. And that is a central theme in uh, Catholic theology and Catholic moral philosophy, that our nature is inherently sinful and we must fight our inherently sinful nature in order to purify ourselves. And we see a character who his nature is to be sinful. It's to be a murderer. Like that's the worst sin of all sins. And he was literally raised and bred to do that by the Rusca Roma. So yeah. And here he is fighting his nature. And in a certain way, he's failing that fight the deeper he gets into this. So the first movie, we feel a sense of righteous vengeance 
The second movie is about consequences because they repeat that word a lot. You know, like, mm -hmm. this is the consequences of the first one. And the third movie is about dealing with the fallout of finally this entire world turns on him. And in that, there is a Dante's Inferno aspect to it, there, which is referenced specifically in the third one. He's making his way through the underworld that is a global conspiracy of criminals that he was once a member of, and he tried to walk away, but he can't. As Virgo tells him, or I'm sorry, Vigo tells him, God will pull you back in and set you against me because we are cursed men. And John's response to that is, on that, we agree. And ladies and gentlemen, that is why Derek and Laurel from the Midnight Myth are on this podcast. <laughs> because it's, I mean, thank you both. Um, it's just, I, I genuinely feel like this character, um, which you've, you've both kind of put so perfectly is, he is, he is seeking revenge. Um, and the audience do have to feel like they are on his side. Um, the one thing that I kind of always come to is the fact that John, he wants to dig himself out of the hole, like Derek, you mentioned, he wants to kind of dig himself out of the hole, but he only ever seems to dig himself deeper. And I think that's kind of where the second and third movies really kind of um, expand um, the world that we're, we're currently in. Because with the first movie, I think... Had it not done as, as well as it had, it would have just been a, a standalone uh, Keanu Reeves movie. It starts, it ends. And, and theoretically at the end, it's, it's the end of that story. There's, and then you put it on the shelf and you don't kind of worry about it again. Um, and then in the second movie, um, which, I mean, sort of you guys going into um, uh, the, the kind of deeper themes like Dante's Inferno and all of that, I mean, all of that is, I'm not even going to lie to you, all over, you know, completely over my head. Uh, so, so yeah, that, you know, any time you guys want to kind of go into these kind of deeper uh, themes and meanings, um, you know, Catholicism, um, that sort of thing, feel free. Because, <laughs> you know, that, that is why you were here. That is why I was signing your name on the dotted line and saying, you guys are coming on for John Wick. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but... The thing that I always kind of come to is um, in the second movie, um, obviously, like I said, this expands the world. We, we end up in Rome. We have these beautiful shots of um, this rave um, in, in, in the catacombs um, and um, the, the death scene of, um, oh, crikey, her character name escapes me. Um, oh. Uh, is it G oh, Gianna? Yeah, it's Gianna, Gianna D'Antonio. Yep. Yeah. Um, and you have that beautiful shot of her sort of in this in this bath and uh, and she basically she controls her own narrative, which is something that I really love. Instead of she knows what John is there to do. She knows that he's there because her brother, you find out that this um, impossible task that they talk about in the first movie um, that Santino D'Antonio helped John Wick with this impossible task. So therefore, John owes him um, a debt. He has a marker against John. We find out all about markers and about these blood oaths specifically. Um, and so when it comes to, he tries to not take uh, this particular job. He does say, no, I don't want it. But it's against these rules, these two cardinal rules of um, the high table. 
Um, and obviously, it, it kind of goes into a bit more detail about these rules. But essentially, you can't do any business on continental grounds. Um, and the other rule is if um, someone has a marker um, against you, then you must honour that marker. So John tries not to, he ends up getting his house blown up by Santino. John is, is kind of pushed up against a corner there. Um, and it's something that the, the second movie kind of goes into um, a bit of exposition mode as to, to explain why. Um, but John, he doesn't actually kill uh, Gianna. She ends up killing herself. Like I say, she takes control of her own narrative. And she basically says, look, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die on my own rules. Um, and I think that's quite a beautiful looking scene, actually. I think it's done in a very, which sounds really weird considering it's a suicide scene, but it's it's shot in a very um, nice way, which sounds it's, really weird because... Yeah, well, it's it's romantic. It's big R yeah. romantic. It's 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 goth to the core uh, and the color everything is beautiful yeah and it's it's tragic at the same time it makes you a little sick but it's also just breathtaking you're breathtaking Keanu (laughs) (laughs) oh god he is breathtaking Uh, (laughs) I mean this could this could easily just be like two hours of oh my god Keanu is so attractive in this movie that's true Um, yeah and I mean I have to say that this the Stunt, I mean, we can talk about stunt work later, but the stunts are just, whoa. To call a Keanu phrase, whoa. <laughs> um, but um, what John does in that scene, obviously, she she commits suicide, but he then shoots her in the head after she's dead. So he's then fulfilled his uh, his marker. Um, but then it kind of, the, the, the narrative then kind of takes a step further because... Although Santino D'Antonio wanted his sister murdered so he could get her seat, he then takes out a bounty on John. So it kind of takes it then further. Um, and and the, the point that I'm trying to get to, which I'm very ineloquently doing, is ultimately at the end of the movie, uh, John breaks the cardinal rule. Santino is in the Continental so and also John is in the Continental so Santino only does that because he knows that he's safe that nothing can happen to him in the Continental so he tucks into some nice food and basically pisses John off even more and John again has a choice does he leave Santino alone and honour this rule uh, this one of these two cardinal rules or does he shoot Santino D'Antonio in the head? And he chooses to shoot Santino D'Antonio in the head. And the character of John Wick, we, we still root for him, even though he's essentially breaking this rule. Um, and you do kind of have to ask yourself, if he knows that he's going to be punished, why does he do that? And we know it's to obviously forward the, the, the story on and to, you know, to create more drama and to, to kind of essentially create a third movie. But you do have to kind of ask yourself the question, is it that he literally reaches the end of his proverbial wick, excuse the pun, um, <laughs> and he just kind of can't take Santino anymore? But by doing so, he's actually digging his hole even deeper. So he's becoming more entrenched in this world rather than getting out of it if if you kind of see where where I'm trying to go so it I feels like John do. is his own worst enemy really. yeah 
Well, it's a, it's a choice that's really hard for me to get my head around because obviously we don't have the same sort of emotional motivation as the death of Daisy in this one. We get a sense that there is a connection between John and Gianna and there's a history there. So he, he feels something about that and having to fulfill that. But all he really loses in this movie is his house. And yeah, that's a lot. If I lost my house, I would be pissed. But like, it's not, it's not as emotional a connection. So it is hard for me to wrap my head around why he... Uh, makes that choice in the lounge in the Continental because it's not like killing Santino is going to solve anything. It's only going to make it worse. Um, and so, I, yeah, I kind of have to justify it with that either it's so that we can continue to expand this world for story purposes or that John really just cannot resist going further. He cannot resist, um, you know, continuing to bring the pain. Yep. I think it's worth pointing out in all three movies, the quote unquote rule of the continental that you can't conduct business there is broken and by different characters for different reasons. It reminds me that in particular in medieval, you know, Western European history, the idea that there was church ground and that that church ground when it is consecrated is literally a part of the body and flesh of Jesus Christ. And because it is literally that part of that body, you can't do violence there because if you do violence there, you're doing violence against God. And in many ways, the Continental is supposed to feel like that. It's this special place where even though you might have the most violent of killers, such as medieval knights or modern super assassins, they go there, they're not allowed to kill people. And the reality is that's total BS. It was BS in the Middle Ages. It's BS in John Wick. The first movie, there's an assassin. There are two assassins that try to kill John in the Continental. The first is uh, William Defoe's character who tries to shoot him while he's sleeping. And then that leads to the fight with Miss Perkins in which she is apparently the offender who's breaking the, broken the rules and John's just defending himself so he gets a pass. In the second one, you know, here is John confronting this absolutely terrible, terrible person who is willing to kill his own sister to advance his own agenda and then kill John Wick, who he forced him to do it. At the end of the day, if the Continental's protecting him, what good is the Continental? You know, like, what kind of sanctuary? So no matter how bad you are, there's sanctuary. So yeah, I get it. John Wick is like, no, at this point, I'm righteous retribution. And this entire idea that this is sacred is a fundamental lie. Like we see John literally shooting a priest and burning down a church in the first building. And then in the third movie, the Continental gets deconsecrated because of a phone call and it becomes the site of a major battle. Yeah. So it shows you how arbitrary it is. And John's really just raging against the machine. This world Mm -hmm. is about violence. It's about force. It's not about rules. There are no rules when everyone that's in this world only respects one thing, which is you do what I say or I kill you. Well, that's not a world with rules. That's authoritarian. And we see John shattering that authoritarian illusion in the second movie. And in the third movie, we see them just completely blow this entire place up. If it could be deconsecrated because of phone call, it was never really the a consecrated piece of land, right? Because the idea of it being consecrated is you can't take it back. 
Like you can't deconsecrate something once it's become the flesh and blood of the savior. Like that, that's undoable. And the fact that they can undo it means that it's just a hotel. And, and that's all it is. A hotel that can sometimes give sanctuary to a bunch of ruthless killers. And other times ruthless killers will kill there. And yet there are consequences to all actions. But to me, yes, it drives John deeper in this world. But to me, I come back to the idea the world's never going to let him go to begin with. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really excellent point that you've made there, Derek, is that the rules of this world, they're only there to benefit the people that it benefits. Maybe a character like John Wick, you would kind of look at it, well, he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. They're so desperate to use him. And um, when they don't want to use him, they'll happily just kind of get rid of him. Um, But obviously he's John Wick. So he's off the focal point of these movies i don't know if these movies would be brave enough to to kill him um i mean we can obviously there is a sequel um but it's coming so i i don't know whether these movies would actually do that um but i think that would be a very brave thing to do i agree um, yeah you know for for the fourth say for example for the fourth movie to actually have someone kill john wick i think would be Obviously, it would be the final movie, um, unless they go, uh, oh, what's that Bourne movie? The one where it's not Jason Bourne. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I know what they, you mean. They, I've never seen it. Uh, the Bourne Legacy, that's the one. Um, where they, you know, they take a character, they use the character in the name of the movie, but it's actually nothing to do with that character. Or they do, like, the, um, the Continental Extended Universe. Well, it's interesting you say that, because I actually did see they are planning to do a Continental TV show. Um, which is going to explore the whole. um, And apparently Keanu Reeves, um, he's not going to be the main star, um, but apparently he is going to feature in this TV show. I would Um, totally watch that. They're also looking at a spin-off movie called Ballerina as well. Nice. um, Which apparently was not originally set in the John Wick universe. It was a separate project. And then they obviously went in John Wick 3, you have ballerinas um, is actually going to be one of the actresses one of the ballerinas in that movie who's taking the title role of ballerina um but yeah it's uh, it's actually going to be a spin-off now of uh, of john wick so uh so yeah i think the, the, the universe of john wick is is only going to get bigger but you could argue well surely the ultimate culmination of this saga surely is going to end up either the death of john wick because i kind of feel like with the the story kind of progressing and him kind of going deeper and deeper into this world of, and it is a corrupt world, you know, it's a, it's a criminal underworld. There's always going to be an avenue whereby someone is going to, you know, have some reason to pull him further in. So if you think about it, the only way that he's ever going to get out um, is either the way he got out before with this impossible task, so to speak, that only he can do, or his ultimate demise um which is actually quite depressing and i kind of feel like maybe we shouldn't be talking about the death of john wick um considering it's uh, it's obviously there's a third there's a third he could literally kill absolutely everyone else (laughs) in the criminal underworld (laughs) and be the only one left and then he'll be free so there is a third option yeah absolutely or he could go into the matrix i mean we could keep on going there's all (laughs) kinds of options (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, you do, you don't know. Maybe this is the Matrix. Maybe he will wake up, unplug himself. There you go. In the real world and realise he was in the Matrix this whole time. Oh, um, brilliant. I mean, like Derek said, it could just end up that he kills everyone and he then becomes this criminal mastermind. He he is the high table. I, I actually took a count. Did, I googled it because I'm not going to sit here and physically count, but the character of John Wick has killed 299 people so far. Wow. Um, That's it? On screen. (laughs) (laughs) On screen, yeah. Um, Which, I mean, one man killing almost 300 people. I mean, that is impressive. That is seriously (laughs) impressive. You must get up very early in the morning, John. (laughs) I mean, to have that kind of focus and... uh, Commitment and 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 sheer will. (laughs) Commitment, will, reflexes, uh, skill. Um, He's physically fit, uh, obviously, you know, find yourself a man who can be that committed and skilled, uh, you know, to, to be able to kill almost 300 people. Uh, I mean, obviously, obviously don't. No, don't find no. yourself a man who, who kills. That is, that is not a good idea. I like a bad boy, but that is kind of going a bit too far. It is interesting kind of looking at the at this world that, that the John Wick saga has kind of explained and put together uh for us over these um over these three movies um and we've talked a little bit about the first and second we have kind of gone into the third a little bit um but the third movie we obviously find out more about john's backstory um we find out his real name is uh jordani jovanovic Eh, i think i got that right uh and that he was born in belarus um we find out that he's obviously been trained uh over a period of time when we visit angelica houston's character the director we see what's essentially a school we see all these young men who are being taught how to fight uh we see these young women who are being trained uh in dance um we can kind of surmise that maybe john has been trained in both because he kind of he has this kind of weird grace in his fight scenes i know that it's directed by a stunt person so the 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 way it's filmed is fascinating to me because it's clear that they are very focused on fight scenes and stunts and it's something that i find i find fight scenes so beautiful to watch um because a lot of the time they're very choreographed it's almost like a dance and i've often kind of compared fight scenes to dance especially when you have weapons um but I feel like with with John Wick, it's it's like a dance, but it's like a bit of a crazy dance because the fight scenes always feel more organic than normal fight scenes. They don't feel like they're staged. They feel real and they feel raw. You know, every time John hits the ground, you know, he hits it with a thud and you can go, ooh, you know, yeah, that's going to hurt. Um, and the fight scenes always feel very organic to me, uh, more so than many other movies that rely so much on these heavily choreographed stunt scenes you know you know the ones that i mean where you always have like we have a circle of uh, of guys and they're all kind of standing there with their knives like waiting for their turn to uh, to kind of you know attack the um the protagonist whereas in these movies it feels very organic that you have a group of guys they all kind of go for john wick and john wick is kind of fighting each of them off and there's no there's no kind of real let up. It's always kind of very fast paced um, in that. Um, and it feels very real to me. Um, I don't know what you guys kind of think of 
fight scenes generally um, and, and the choreography of them. But I don't know, to me, it just feels like it feels a lot more real than a lot of other action movies. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that it feels that way is because uh, at least in the third one, I started to pay more attention to this, but I think it's the case in all three. There are a lot of long takes uh, where we're actually seeing all of the movement uh, in the camera rather than cutting 25 times in a second like a Michael Bay movie. So it, mm. we're actually seeing how the body moves through space. And like that is an incredible testament to like the director of photography as well as the fight choreographer because there are scenes where we're in a hall of mirrors and we don't see a single camera and we can see every yeah. single angle of the body and how it's moving through that space. There is this kind of balance between the sort of balletic, um, beautiful choreography and this raw realism. And for me, one of the things that I um, started to notice was I have a theater background. I don't have a lot of fight choreography or stage combat, but I have some of that training. And you know, one of the things that is always built into that training is safety. Uh, so there are tons of tricks that you pull so that, you know, it's obviously very different for film than for stage because you can actually tell the, the eye where to look uh, in a film, but there's always an element of safety. There's no way anybody's ever going to get hurt in a stage fight if you've done it right, and it's the same way with fight choreography uh, for film. And so there is, there's a little bit that I can see in every fight where I know the actors are safe, and I think that actually makes me feel a little bit better because as real as it looks, I know that Keanu's not gonna get hurt. I know he's not hurting this person. Um, there, I, I can see some of the overcorrection uh, for safety that the actors are doing. Uh, and I'm personally not really good with violence in film. Um, so as violent as these movies are, being able to identify like who's spotting, who's putting their head where uh, so that they you know, don't pull their neck while they're pulling somebody off the couch is really helpful for me to get through the violent scenes. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's just me. Yeah. You know. no, I, yeah, I, th I think it does make sense. And it's interesting, actually, that you you can watch these movies and, and you can see the safety aspect because I think a lot of people would watch these movies and just kind of see, oh, well, John Wick's kicking ass again, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and like you, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of, of ultra-violence, but I kind of feel like this is... It feels real, but it also feels very stylistic. Yeah. Um, and I think it, like I say, the use of of colours um, is something that I, I kind of looked into specifically. The use of, um, like, the um, the director was basically saying that they use, they use colours um, sort of within scenes to kind of give the audience a way to emote. So they use a lot of red if they want you to be angry. Um, and they use a lot of blue if they want you to feel calm. Um, and then they use kind of sepia or, or yellows or oranges to, to kind of a feeling of like relax, relaxation and neutrality. Um, so it, it's, it's quite interesting how they've kind of taken uh, the whole kind of aspect of a very violent, uh, very viscerally violent uh, movie setting. Um, and they they colour it a certain way so that you feel a certain way towards it. Um, and like sort of going back to what you said about making sure it's safe, like a lot of people wouldn't see that, but I think it could kind of help uh, because obviously we all know that the the actors are going to be safe because they're not going to, like you say, they're not going to yeah. make Keanu Reeves do something that's going to, injure him 
because uh, he's Keanu Reeves and he's perfect in every way. And we do not want to mess up that perfect face uh, or that perfect body um, or that lovely back. Um, <laughs> going, going off on one a little bit. Oh, um, man. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, what do you think? I, you know, of all the amazing acting that this franchise has, of all the amazing world building and mythology that we've been philosophizing on, this is an action movie through and through. And to me, the action in this movie is what makes it so exceptional. And I do think it's one of the few times where an action movie stops just being an action movie and it really becomes an amazing piece of art. The every aspect of how they shoot these fight scenes is so unique and so fresh and so believable. Yes, we know it's a ballet and yes, we know John Wick is the title character. So John Wick's not going to die. So we know the end of every fight scene is John kills everyone before they even start. And it doesn't matter because it's so fantastic. So things I paid attention to in this rewatch, um, I'm not a weapons uh, expert in any way, shape, or form, but I've handled a firearm and fired a few in my day. And um, I know, generally speaking, how many bullets go to what type of gun and what type of caliber. So I did a bit of bullet counting in this relative to John's reloading. And most action movies like a John Wick give the action hero an unlimited reservoir of bullets. Mm. Not John Wick. He reloads when the clip is empty every time. And it's a source of suspense and sometimes like a major story point, how many bullets he actually has access to. And I'm like, yeah. and starting from the first one, I'm counting. I'm like, okay, so that clip would most likely have somewhere between 10 to 12 bullets. Let me count. Oh, bullet 11, bullet 12. Oh, he reloaded. And, and so they just took such attention to detail to how they crafted these fight scenes to make them so unique. And it's not possible without Keanu Reeves 100% devoting himself to the character of John Wick. Um, we were watching the special features on the first movie before we did this. He volunteered three months before shooting started just to train that he was not even being paid. He's like, I'm going to start training three months before shooting and just to learn jujitsu, to learn, um, you know, different martial arts. And it is just fantastic. I feel like all of Keanu Reeves's career prepared him for this point to be this character. And we are seeing the best of Keanu Reeves that we could ever possibly see. And it's like, like you know, M, you called it a, a dance. Uh, Laurel, you called it a ballet. It is just surely beautiful to watch these action scenes unfold, to watch such skilled craftsmen people making this beautiful and amazing series of movies. And every time I watch them, I'm blown away, just fully blown away. And I just drop into being just such a huge fan of like, I can't believe they pulled this off. No action movie has ever looked like this. No action movie has ever felt like this. It's so unique. And I, and I just love it. I think you've made an excellent point there, actually, Derek, about... Uh, accuracy uh, and about attention to detail because it was something that I noticed as well and I think you're absolutely right when you say that a lot of these movies but if you took a, a standard Michael Bay movie uh, you give his lead character a gun 
and they will just continue to shoot, 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 shoot. And it's not realistic. You, there's no way you're going to have 100 rounds in a, a pistol. And I know nothing about guns, like literally nothing. Yeah, um, same. Obviously. <laughs> but um, one of the things I love about this movie, like you've quite brilliantly put, Derek, is the fact that he will have a gun and he will have on his belt all of the necessary rounds that he will need. It's not a case of he's got one gun for the whole of the movie and that's it. But also, like you say, he has a certain amount of rounds. He has to then reload. And he has to reload in inventive ways because he's still getting shot at. Um, he still has to take the time to reload. Keanu Reeves is so skilled at um, the, the process of taking a gun, shooting it. He's gorgeous and sexy anyway but he knows how to excuse the pun handle his weapon you know he he knows how to not only shoot it and and there's i mean loads of headshots in this movie i mean he is very skilled at a headshot um and halle berry for that matter as well who we've not even mentioned yet but i i absolutely adore halle berry just generally but i think she's so great in uh in chapter three um she's not in it for very long it actually surprised me because i thought she was in it for longer than she actually was but going back to keanu i think i think he he is absolutely brilliant and he's he's an actor who's always so dedicated i mean if you kind of go back to when he starred in the matrix he was so dedicated to learning his craft to making uh neo look as skilled as he possibly could you know with fight scenes and with choreography and stuff like that and so into doing his own stunts which is something that he does a lot of in john wick i mean even things like driving the car i mean it's keanu driving the car you can clearly see it's not a stuntman um, the things that he is doing in these movies, um, it, I mean, it would be phenomenal if a 20-year-old actor was doing it. The fact that Keanu Reeves is, uh, you know, a very attractive, very good-looking man in his 50s who is still doing these roles and still putting this attention to detail, this amount of content and, and the character, because... I think Keanu Reeves as an actor is someone who is... I think a lot of people will kind of take the mickey out of him and say, well, you know, he's just Ted from Bill and Ted. He doesn't really do much. And I know I've spoken to quite a lot of people who know that I love Keanu Reeves and they, they do it to take the mickey out of me, you know, friends and stuff who say, well, Keanu can't act. And I would actually turn around and say, no, I think you'll find that Keanu knows his character and he knows what to bring to his character. And he knows that John Wick is not a character who is happy and pleasant and, you know, a friend to everyone. You know, he's he's supposed to be stoic. He's a man of few words. He talks by his actions um, and he knows how to handle a gun and he knows how to shoot people in the head. Um, and that is that is who John Wick is. Um, I feel like I've gone off on a tangent. I didn't mean to. But I, I, I just kind of wanted to say that I feel like everything about this movie is, is so well detailed, even down to the fact that if you look at each, all of the three films, and it's something that I noticed, is the character of John Wick, because a lot of the scenes are very dark, and they're dark for a reason, um, because a lot of the bad guys have torches, and it's very interesting because you'll, John Wick will never carry a torch. He never has a light. He never has any sort of way of knowing where he is in this darkness. But the bad guys will have torches. And it's very clever that the movie does this because 
he can see them, but they can't see him. And it adds to this myth of the, the boogeyman, yeah. the man in the shadows. Uh, because you, if you watch these films again, um, and it's something, like I say, it's in the first, second, and in the third one as well, you will see that he never has any sort of light, never has any torch, anything like that. But the bad guys always do. So he can always see them, but they can't see him. And I just think it it's a great addition to this character, this, this myth of the boogeyman. That's a the- really, really good call out. Cause so Derek and I did a recent episode where we actually went into quite a bit of detail on all of the different kind of cultural uh, references to the boogeyman and how every culture has a version of this, but very few of them have a concrete description of what the boogeyman looks like. It's just, you know, the creature under your bed or in your closet or out in the woods who will get you if you misbehave. Nobody knows what he looks like. He's the epitome of the unknown. And that's kind of the same for John Wick. He's obviously recognizable, but the name means a lot more than the actual appearance. So knowing that he is the the shadow sort of slinking through the darkness that you can't see sneak up on you really lends to that whole boogeyman mythos. That's a great call out. Like I say, it's just something that I I noticed and I just thought it was really interesting that they did that because you would think that he would need to see in the dark, but he doesn't. He's just so instinctive. And essentially, you know, he is a killer. You know, let's not kind of sugarcoat the fact that John Wick, he's killed 299 people. He is essentially a killer. And yet we're still kind of rooting for him um, because we're so attached to him. Um, And I think having Keanu in the role definitely helps. I kind of feel like, is there another actor who could do this i mean it's so synonymous with keanu now that he is john wick um keanu is so kind of universally beloved by everyone there's i don't think there's anyone who would turn around and say i don't like keanu reeves he seems like an absolute dick because he genuinely seems like a very nice man in real life he's as as i keep saying incredibly attractive uh man um everyone loves him um I feel like there's only one, yeah, I I feel like there's only one actor who can compete with likability on that scale, and that's Tom Hanks, and I cannot see him in an action movie. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Can you imagine the the lovely, sweet Tom Hanks? America's dad. Headshots. I mean, yeah. I love Tom Hanks, genuinely. I think he's the world's dad. Um, He's just so nice. He's he's so likable. This movie is obviously set in the modern world. You know, everyone has uh, smartphones or, well, mobile phones. I don't know if they're especially smart, uh, but they get text messages to let them know about, um, you know, recent bounties. Um, And obviously pretty much everyone in the world knows that there's a bounty on John Wick. um, And it's basically a a bit of a free-for-all once he becomes uh, excommunicado in the third movie. Um, But the thing that fascinates me the most is we learn about the high table the criminal organization um these so-called heads of uh that sit at the high table we also learn a little bit about the the way that this uh this underworld kind of works um and whilst the movie is obviously set in the modern day it's all very kind of retro really um this kind of pledging fealty to uh, an organisation kind of feels very oldie-worldy. And when the hits go out on John Wick, when he is excommunicado, it's all done in a very kind of retro setting. You know, these um, 
people, they type at typewriters. Um, they have this uh, sort of chalk scoreboard uh, which they write on. They, um, they have these very old uh, phones um, in this kind of office setting um, with this, uh, these secretaries who take the calls. And, and um, it's like very 50s like very retro 50s where they have to plug the calls into the, uh, the switchboard the switchboard yeah thank you yeah. um the whole and you know where they they pay for everything in gold coins um and this uh the, the whole kind of markers and, and blood oaths specifically um see that kind of calls back to me when you're talking about oaths and you're talking about pledging fealty it feels kind of very medieval do, do you guys kind of know anything about that kind of pledging fealty to people and and, and all of that. But, yeah, uh, no, the pledging of fealty is a absolutely seems to be a resonant and callback to the oaths of vassalage, which were common in particular in the high Middle Ages. So Middle Age history is broken down into three, three parts, um, early, high, and then late. During the high Middle Ages is when you start seeing the formation of a really stratified uh, feudal society in which people would swear oaths of vassalage to their superiors. So I was a really good knight. I could afford a horse. I had armor and I proven myself as a worthy killer. There would be someone who had more knights that had sworn um, fealty to that knight, saying like, hey, swear fealty to me. I'll give you a plot of land. You'll have a, a small castle that you can maintain. And if need be, I can call upon you to fight for me. And then they would swear that vassalage oath. And then when called upon, the vassals would have to go and fight for their liege lord. This is the uh, like setting of lots of amazing historical, um, interesting antidotes. One of the medieval antagonisms between the French and the British, for example, is that the British king, William um, of Normandy, William the Bastard, also known as William the Conqueror, was technically a vassal to the um, king of France. And there was antagonism, which is who actually holds more sway? Should England be subservient to France if the line of English kings owe vassalage to the king of France? I am somewhat getting distracted here. We see this in... Um, in a few different ways in John Wick, first with the blood marker, which is a like a, to swear an oath of vassalage, you have to go through a ceremony and that ceremony is ritualized and it's codified and it supplants that relationship. So we see things like the marker as a oath of vassalage. So John's saying, hey, if you can help me get out of the underworld, you'll have this marker. And if you need to call upon me to fight for you, I will fight for you. I will be your knight in shining armor, and I can't say no. Um, similar to medieval history, as in the world with John Wick, oftentimes the vassals, also sometimes called castellans, would swear these oaths, and then the liege lord would say, come and fight with me, and they'd be like, yeah, I'm kind of in my castle right now. And they're like, I've got weapons, and like I don't really have to, and if you want to make me, then like come fight my castle, good luck. But you're already at war over there, so you can't really fight me over here. So oftentimes these oaths wouldn't be fulfilled, um, which led to, in medieval structure, a huge power vacuum, and the question of where does power come from? 
Does it come from the king? Does it come from the church? Do the lords really have all the power? Is the king just a figurehead? And ultimately, in medieval society, it eventually, everything got structured around kings, and kings became the absolute authorities, similar to we see in this world. So we can imagine this world had gone through something like this, where it sets up these really, like, very clear structures. There's a oligarchic council, a council of 12. We learned in the third movie, there is he who sits above the council, and that's a presumably the king of the underworld who can make decisions without having to clear it through the council. They have set rules and guidelines of how people should behave and act, where they can kill, where they can't kill. Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting note that like the entire criminal world is analog, makes sense. If it's too digital, it's too easy to track. But if it's a name on a chalkboard, it can be erased. You know, because they're criminals, they deal with paper, books, pencils, all very important symbols stuff here. Stuff that's easy to shred. Chalk and stuff that can also be turned into weapons. Yeah. Um, if need be, mm -hmm. like John Wick does. So there is a air of um, sort of medievalness in the basic like rules that we see in how this, this world is governed. Um, it also kind of mimics the Catholic Church. Um, the Catholic Church is, is considered um, to be an Episcopal Church, so it has a pope at the top, and underneath that you have a, a conclave of cardinals, and they're sort of like the Council of Twelve, and then underneath that you have all these individual parishes and other structures, and it's also highly stratified with a set of rules that people must follow, because those rules coming from the top come from God. And in practice throughout history, people are kind of meh on actually following those rules where the common people are, are held to them, you know? So, uh, but where if you're powerful enough and rich enough, you're not necessarily held to them is another way that we can see. And the um, Catholic Church is obviously a, an institution formed out of the late antiquity and early medieval period. So it kind of fits that whole theme. Wow, that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that was the the most perfect response. And again, like this is the reason why I wanted you guys on for this. But I'm so glad you guys have come on for John Wick. I'm so I'm so happy. <laughs> so am I. I uh, I really had no like I knew I had seen the first one before we actually agreed to do this, and I knew that I could extract some mythology from it, obviously with the Baba Yaga references, but like. I had no idea what I was in for with just like how much is going on um, underneath the surface with these movies. It's just kind of baking in this uh, like incredible tapestry of references and of illusions and just really enriching this whole universe. Absolutely. It, it just kind of goes back into what we've already said that this these are not just you know, by-the-numbers action movies. I mean, there's so many by-the-numbers action movies out there that are literally just, you know, a guy with a gun who will just, you know, bang, bang, kill some people. These are so detailed in their execution, in their mythology, in their world-building, um, in, in, even in their characterization. Because, like I say, you could argue that uh, John Wick is a very one note character but i feel like he's got a lot of a, more of a deeper meaning than many kind of the standard action heroes that 
you know, that Hollywood kind of pumped out in the, you know, in the 90s, you know, where you had like action heroes were kind of the norm and you always had this one guy and it was him against the world and, uh, you know, he took vengeance for X, Y and Z. But I feel like these movies, obviously they like to pay homage to a lot of other movies, um, you know, uh, specifically things like martial arts movies. And Good, the Bad, um, the Ugly and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of homages there to to a lot of other genres that I feel like they, they're obviously taking all of these things and they're putting them all together, but they're doing it in such a way that always kind of feels very interesting to watch. Um, I, I am very interested to see again what they do for John Wick Chapter 4, uh, which is uh, due out, I believe, next year, because obviously a lot of movies have been postponed, you know, their releases. There will inevitably be a knock-on effect for movies that are due out in 2021. They're, they're, you know, it, they're, things may get delayed. But I feel like with these movies that, on the surface... They're, they're pretty to look at, you know, the music is nice, you know, they, they, the music I find very interesting because they're movies that have roots in classical music, you know, in the continental they play quite a lot of classical music, um, but also, they also play quite a lot of like techno music, and I kind of feel like these, these movies are at home with you know, the likes of Vivaldi as much as they're at home with the likes of Skrillex or something yeah. <laughs> like that. And it's, it's, it feels like very, it feels very weird to, to describe them. If if you had to describe these movies to, to someone, you could kind of say, well, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an action movie. You know, Keanu Reeves shoots a lot of people for vengeance. In a way, like with John Wick, with him sort of digging deeper into this criminal underworld, the viewer is kind of digging deeper into the layers that this movie represents. Um, and it, it just, I find it so fascinating. I, I genuinely do. Um, but again, that's why you guys are here, because I feel like with you guys kind of on the verbal diorama team for this episode, you know, together, that we are kind of peeling these uh, onion layers, so to speak, yeah, you know, yeah. Shrek reference there, <laughs> and, and kind of going really deep into... The, the real kind of themes um, behind this movie. And it, it, it just makes it even more fascinating for me. Yeah, totally, totally, 100% agree. And I, the way I would, I describe John Wick when I find someone who hasn't watched it, I would say, what if an action movie could be as close to high art as high art? And ask, ask that question, and then the answer is, then you have the John Wick and because I really do think these movies are, you know, not to oversell them, they're transcendent. There is something to them, and it's and it's down to every single thing happening correctly. Getting Keanu Reeves to do it, um, getting a ex-stunt director to direct it, um, focusing on the action, making the story simple and powerful and resonant, and then building a mythology in, in a whole alternate universe that we can explore, which allows us then to go movie to movie to movie. That's just, you know, so unique and it's just so awesome. Yeah. Is there anything else that you guys want to specifically mention that uh, you feel is, you know, important to mention with kind of what we've talked about, you know, with regards to the world building and the mythology or or anything specific that, you know, that you guys excel at? Because we know what you guys excel at. You're great at everything. Is there anything that you wanted to specifically highlight? I do think it's worth a little bit of time to delve into the details on why Dante is referenced so frequently uh, within this story. Sure. I think there's some obvious, uh, you know, reasons that 
uh, Dante is invoked, obviously we are constantly moving through hellscapes and underworlds, uh, and Dante's Inferno is the you know most famous work that he wrote that's part of the Divine Comedy. Um, and then Inferno is actually a book that is uh, being carried by Ernest, the guy who attacks John in the library in the third film. Uh, so there's constantly hell and descent. There is uh, movement up and down physically through space. So John may be in a basement in one scene and maybe on the roof of the Continental in another. And the Divine Comedy is all about uh, how, as Angelica Houston's the director quotes, the path to paradise begins in hell. So we're watching John kind of try to scrape his way out of the inferno into purgatory and then into paradise. And we're wondering if he's ever going to make it to paradise. I do think if there is a purgatory in this film, it's Casablanca because Casablanca in film history represents purgatory. In that classic film, it's where Americans and expats go to await their boat or their plane that helps them escape to the US. Um, but this kind of frequent imagery and then of course the like placement of Helen as the uh, John's deceased wife as the like final goal, as the thing that he wants to remember, is also invoking Dante. Because the Divine Comedy ends with uh, Dante the Traveler, uh, Dante the Pilgrim, leaving his guide Virgil, who is the you know famous uh, Greek poet, and joining uh, his Beatrice, the woman that he loved in life. And she becomes uh, this uh, conduit by which he is able to achieve grace, and uh, beatific love and divine bliss. And so I think that's what we're you know, eventually carving our way towards with John Wick is hopefully he will somehow be able to achieve grace through the memory of his wife. Um, the last thing I'll say about Dante is that he does have Virgil as his guide for the inferno and purgatory. And Don, uh, uh, Virgil can't join him in paradise because Virgil is a pagan. Uh, and Dante is a Christian poet who is very much aware that he is working in the, uh, the vein of the classics who are all these pagan writers like Homer and Virgil and Horace. So once again, we have a marriage of this sort of pagan mythological soup that we see in John Wick with the Greco-Roman references and so on with the highly Catholic, uh, very Christian cosmology that it's being married to. That was, oh my God, I love you guys. Uh, that was honestly so perfect. Like I could never, I could, well, I could do an episode on uh, John Wick trilogy and and I could talk about, you know, the stunts and the music and the look um, and, and all of that stuff. But there is no way on this earth that I could talk about the link to Dante's Inferno. There, there's, there's just no way. That is why you guys are here and that is why um, I'm, just so thrilled that you are here to tell everyone who's listening and me because I'm learning stuff. <laughs> I'm learning stuff, guys. Um, the, the, how deep the layers of this movie actually go and how you can sort of reference something like Dante's Inferno from John Wick. I, I just genuinely find it so fascinating. And I feel like now I actually want to go and learn a bit more about... Dante and you know Dante's Inferno so the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode is is gonna be really tough I, <laughs> I don't be. know how you're gonna do it Em I really don't I just I just don't I mean do you guys have any suggestions as to how could we link this movie to Keanu in any way um, I mean like there's some maybe matrix could... references 
do you know what I was just going to say? Like maybe we could talk about the the, the fact that uh, the the director of this movie obviously worked with Keanu on the stunts for the Matrix. Like maybe we could get that in yeah. somehow. Hmm. <laughs> um, obviously the Lawrence Fishburne thing. Obviously Derek mentioned earlier there is a link to the Matrix, which obviously starred Keanu. Um, but otherwise, I'm I'm kind of coming up a bit of a blank. I'm not going to lie. It's the first time I it's think we should what? skip the Keanu reference. Dante's Inferno, Satan, Al Pacino, Devil's Advocate, Devil's Advocate. Oh my God! <laughs> yes, we did it. Yes, we did it, guys. Perfect. We did it. Perfect. Perfect reference. I mean, there was no other way that we could have done it. I mean, Derek, I thank you. You are today's king of the obligatory Keanu reference because there's there's no way we could have done it. I really do love that movie, The Devil's Advocate. Obligatory Keanu reference. It was very difficult, but thanks. Thank you to Derek. Thank you to Laurel for her suggestions as well. I think I think we finally managed. We it, so. we got through it. <laughs> we got through it. Uh, it's it is something that I love to do, and I and I feel like it's kind of my thing now. But I I actually really love because I know um, you guys um, referenced it. Um, I, oh, the episode's gone out of in my hot head. fuzz. Hot fuzz. Yes. Oh, that was a great episode. Um, but yeah, obviously, uh, I, I love it when other people kind of take on an obligatory Keanu reference and they kind of call back to me. I absolutely love it. It's my favourite thing. <laughs> um, it's it's still one of those things that I always get such a thrill out of when other podcasts kind of reference verbal diorama in some way or just kind of, you know, give me a bit of a shout out. Or I absolutely love it. I still love it to this day. It's one of my favourite things in the whole oh, world. Oh, yeah, so, it's so yeah. heartwarming. <laughs> Anytime you guys want to call out an obligatory Keanu reference, just just feel free. <laughs> uh, you you have my you have my undying permission to use an obligatory Keanu reference on the Midnight Myth anytime you want. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I just want to quickly go through figures, budgets, um, because obviously these three movies uh, have have each kind of got more expensive uh, each time, um, and you can see it on screen. I mean they. The, as the movies progress, I mean, the first movie looks very nice. You know, it's very stylistic. Um, and then the second movie, as I said, we go to Rome. We get even more amazing uh, sets and, and scenery with the catacombs and this Italian rave, which is like all neon and very cool. I'd really want to go to that party. I don't want to get shot, but I want to go to the party. Um, and then moving on to um, the third one. Obviously, in the third one, you know, we're, we're talking big names in the cast. We're talking Halle Berry. We're talking the legendary Angelica Houston. Um, and as you get more of these people in the cast, it's going to cost a little bit more money. So the first movie cost $20 million, which is actually very modest um, for really any movie. I mean, for any uh, movie to cost $20 million nowadays is... It's practically unheard of, really. Um, and that ended up returning $86 million worldwide. So they were very happy with the returns on that movie. So then they made a second movie and they upped the budget to $40 million. And then that returned $171 million. So they were very, very, very happy with that. So then they commissioned a third movie, which I, I kind of read that uh, Keanu Reeves and Chad Stahelski weren't actually all that enamoured about coming back for a third movie. They, they took a lot of time to think about it. Um, they wanted to have a reason for, for John Wick to come back. Um, and, you know, a proper progression of the story, which again kind of goes into this 
these themes of they want to put as much detail in as possible. They don't just want to bring John Wick back for the sake of it. They actually want a reason to bring him back. So the third movie, they upped the budget to $75 million, which again is actually quite modest, really, uh, when you think about it. Um, and that ended up returning $326 million. So anyone who ever uh, worked on John Wick or invested in John Wick or produced John Wick um, is very, very happy with those figures. Um, and as I said, there is a sequel that is currently due out in 2021, which will obviously, again, up the budget and, and undoubtedly will make them a lot of money. Um, and let's hope that Keanu has a percentage in those figures um, because he deserves it because he's very attractive and he's great. Um, and, um, uh, oh, actually, before, before we finish off, because we're kind of getting towards the end now, um, I guess I just wanted to kind of say, is there anything else that Derek and Laurel, you guys want to specifically mention? Is there anything that you feel we've missed? Are you completely satisfied by your time uh, with the John Wick trilogy? And uh, are you happy to leave it here? I there I have a ton more that I could say. Same, yeah. But, but for the interest <laughs> yeah. of time, I'll have to hold back. My second favorite character in it, not John Wick, John Wick is obviously my favorite character, is Winston. And I would love to just deep dive into his progression from really just kind of there in the first one sets up a little bit of rules to being a like father figure to John who betrays him at the very end of mm -hmm. uh, the third movie. Um, so yeah, I, I, I feel very content with where we're at. There's so much more to talk about too. You know, the conversation never ends. Yeah, same. I, I could, I could keep going for hours, um, but I feel honestly pretty good. Yeah. And, and the thing is, every episode that I do, I always kind of get to the end of the episode and, and say, oh, there's so much more we could talk yeah, about. And there's yeah. so much, you know, and there, and there genuinely is. I mean, every movie there genuinely is. You could talk about any movie uh, and, until the cows come home. But I feel like with this movie in particular, we've not really talked about any of the specific characters. We've not really talked about, uh, well, we've not really talked about the detailed plots of the movie. Um, I... I just want to point out that obviously Derek uh, mentioned about Winston and about the betrayal um, at the end of the third movie, because that's obviously going to set up the fourth movie and about how John deals with being betrayed um, by his, essentially his, his closest friend. Uh, you know, Winston is a guy who's always been there for him. He's always felt like Winston's had his back. And in the third movie, you feel like they are a team um, and that they are kind of taking on the high table together. Um, and then Winston just turns around and, and betrays John in order to get the Continental uh, reconsecrated. Um, and like, uh, I think it was you, Derek, who mentioned earlier about the fact it's just a phone call that the adjudicator, who's um, Asia Kate Dillon, they just make a phone call and that's it. It's, it's then again kind of reconsecrated and then John Wick lives to fight another day um, another thing that i just wanted to mention was i feel like these movies are a continuation of each other because they are a continuation of each other it, it's it's almost like it's a you know a couple of days in the life of john wick because they all kind of follow on i hope that it doesn't get to a point where do, do you guys remember the tv series 24 yeah with, uh Kiefer Sutherland, which was in real time was, yeah exactly where the first season of 24 was just 
gripping TV. Like everyone was watching 24. Everyone was talking about it in the office. It was this truly defining TV show of its generation. And then obviously it had season two, season three, season four, season five. And then you were kind of getting to a point of how many bad days can Jack Bauer actually have? <laughs> yeah. You know, where he, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't eat, he doesn't poop. You know, he doesn't do anything other than fight the bad guys. Um, and I really hope that we're not, we don't get into a situation with John Wick where it becomes John Wick's been on the run for 26 days now. And, you know, he still hasn't taken a shower. He still hasn't slept, you know. Because yeah, yeah. I kind of feel like that would take away something from this franchise, um, maybe in, in, a, in a small way. But, um, I totally agree. I don't. I don't think they'll get to that. But. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, Hopefully, they they have an idea of how to wrap up at least John's part of his story in this world. I would love to see this world continue post John Wick, but if we're at like John Wick chapter ten, at that point in time, I'll be like, all right, this has gotten a little ridiculous. Yeah. How and he's like killed like fifteen thousand people, and it's like how many more people does he have to kill to avenge his puppy? <laughs> you know, and it's just yeah, you kind of feel like at that point the audience might kind of go, well, actually, he's killed quite a lot of people. I do think that they will they will retire the character in some way before it gets to that point because I think the people behind this movie genuinely love this character. I think Keanu loves this character. I think that Keanu is not gonna just be John Wick for the sake of being John Wick. I think he's only ever going to be John Wick if there's something in the story that they want to tell about John Wick. Um, and again, that's kind of just testament to how wonderful and attractive and lovely Keanu is. Um, have I mentioned he's quite attractive? I don't think you I, have. I don't think, yeah, no. No, I don't think. I don't think I have. I think we do need to kind of wrap up. As much as I would love to talk to you guys, and I think... I think we could genuinely talk about this for hours and hours and hours, probably even days, probably as many days as John Wick's been, you know, on the run. Uh, we could probably talk about his story and the, the legacy and the lore and the mythology behind this really fantastic franchise of movies that I think people need to give more credit to than they actually do. I think people enjoy them, but I don't think they really kind of go deep into the story. And, and I'm just absolutely thrilled that you guys have come on and you've been able to kind of really delve deep with me into the the myth of John Wick so thank you so much yeah I mean it's a it's a pleasure to be with you on anything but I, I feel tremendously honored to come on for a Keanu film for you know on verbal diorama like the <laughs> the greatest Keanu podcast but also just like such <laughs> such a vast and epic series of films that we were able to go so deep and talk about so much. Um, I, I feel, I feel honored. So thank you. And I totally agree. I think John Wick doesn't get the critical credit it deserves in much the same way that I don't think Keanu Reeves, the actor gets as much respect as he deserves as an actor. I think that those, those two things are happening synonymously and Thank you so much for having us on your podcast, Em. We are at The Midnight Myth are a huge fan of your podcast, and it just means so much to us that you invited us on. You guys know just, just how much I admire and respect you and just think that you are both just incredible podcasters and just incredible human beings. Um, you know, I know that uh, we've had sort of many conversations on like Twitter and I know that obviously 
talking to the Midnight Myth Twitter is normally Laurel and then Derek, you and I have had a couple of conversations on Twitter sort of under your account. Um, and you're just always such a genuine delight to just converse with, just generally. Um, we're quite fortunate in that we like a lot of the same things, but I feel like with you guys, you, you're just so much more learned and intelligent uh, than, you know, I could ever dream of, of being. So I, I genuinely feel very honoured that you guys have, have come on Verbal Diorama and that I'm so happy that you came on to talk about John Wick. And it's just been a genuine delight. And I wish that we could talk more. Uh, and undoubtedly, when we stop recording, we probably will talk for a little bit longer <laughs> uh, because you guys are just, you're just so great to talk to um and yeah your your podcast is genuinely one of my favorites uh, I learned so much from you guys uh you know I feel like in many ways you know I'm the the, the pupil and you guys are like the the teachers it's <laughs> just like teaching me all this really incredible stuff I think you're wonderful I'm I'm like I'm speechless but just everything you're saying goes both ways just thank you <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just a it's just a podcast I know right I know just, just generally well, you know um, one one of the, the the tough parts about both Laurel and I's schedule and researching our own podcast is that I genuinely don't have a lot of time to listen to other podcasts which is something that the reason I started podcasting was because I loved them and uh, I always make time for yours M because yeah. your yours is my favorite podcast out there about film, not my own, obviously. <laughs> um, and yeah, everything that you do is just so delightful. You have so much joy in what you do with the verbal diorama. And yeah, just mutual admiration society here. Obviously, what I want you guys to do is now that we've all, you know, gushed over each other and each other's podcasts, um, I want to give you guys an opportunity to plug the Midnight Myth and basically tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find your podcast, where they can follow you guys. Um, and just basically anything that you want to say about the Midnight Myth. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are available on pretty much every podcatcher out there. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, et cetera. Wherever you listen, you can probably find the Midnight Myth. Um, we are also on all the social medias. You can find us on Twitter at The Midnight Myth and on Instagram and Facebook at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we would just love to hear from you if you've got questions, if you've got thoughts, if you've got episodes you'd like us to do. We're always looking for feedback and uh, just a good conversation. Um, you can also head to our website, midnightmyth.com, for tons more. We do blogs and all that stuff. The, uh, we also just put out a page of featured episodes. So if you are new to the podcast, if you've never listened to us before and you want to know what some of our best episodes are or kind of really good entry episodes to figure out what we do, check that out at midnightmyth.com. We just finished up a Lord of the Rings reread and series, so that's been taking up a ton of our time. But uh, we have no idea what we're going to do next after finishing that book series. <laughs> um, but we'll we'll have some more space in our brain after this heavy conversation about John Wick. So uh, we'd love to have you over there. Definitely check it out and uh, you know hit us up if you have anything to say. Yeah, and if you want to talk to me specifically, I'm available on Twitter at Derek Jones one nine eight. If you go to the at Midnight Myth, you're probably 99.9% .9 of the time talking to Laurel, not me. Perfect. Right. Okay. We're going to wrap this up because like every good story, there has to come an yep. end. Um, and, um, and we need to reach the end of this podcast. Um, but uh, undoubtedly, we will collaborate again um, on something. Um, I would very much like to. 
uh, I would very much love to come back on the Midnight Myth if you'll have me. So, uh, and you guys are welcome on Verbal Diorama anytime you like. Um, so, uh, yeah, obviously we can we can talk about that um, later. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, I will finish it here. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Um, so the next episode um, is a really, really special episode actually um it's my favorite sports movie and i'm not a big sports fan um i don't really enjoy watching sport um i have partaken in sports um i've mentioned on this podcast that i was a kickboxer for a while but i don't really kind of go a deal for sports movies as a rule um but there is one movie that i just constantly adore that I will always go to if I need a little pick me up and if I also need to cry it out a little bit because it always makes me cry um but then again I think we've established that pretty much everything does I just have five words and and f- before I say them I'd just like to say good luck to me finding an obligatory Keanu reference for it uh because it's gonna be a tough one but um all I'll say is there's no crying in baseball um, because the next episode is based on a true story of the female baseball teams that were filmed during World War II. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a league of their own, and I genuinely can't wait because it's because I love it. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on. <coughs> Here we go: Titan A.E., Captain Marvel, Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain, and the World of Tomorrow, Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods. Speed, Aladdin, 1992-2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, X-Men Dark Phoenix, Charlie's Angels, 2000, The Mummy, 1999, The Matrix, John Carter, Willow, The Iron Giant, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Logan, Edge of Tomorrow, Legally Blonde, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 4, Episode 10, Hush, Mystery Men, Passengers, Stardust, Constantine, Arthur Christmas, Akira, Kubo and the Two Strings, The Incredibles, The Lego Movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Hell's Moving Castle, My Neighbour Totoro, Spirited Away, Treasure Planet, Clueless, Hellboy 2004, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, Bridesmaids and Tremors. And they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. (sighs) Really need to sort that list out. (laughs) Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama from $2 a month. You can get some fab perks, such as access to the upcoming schedule, a shout out on the next episode, um, and on Twitter, and episodes early as well, slightly earlier than everyone else. Um, so a big thank you to patrons, Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason and Kristen for supporting Verbal Diorama. All my tears are Keanu themed, obviously. You can email me if you want to get in touch um, with general hellos, feedback or suggestions. That's verbaldiorama at gmail.com. My website is verbaldiorama.com. If you like what I do or what any podcaster does, for that matter, and you want to leave me a great review, you can do so over on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. Um, I would really appreciate that. And so would any podcaster that you listen to. Um, And finally, um, 
I have a column over at Film Stories magazine. It's an independent British movie magazine. Um, I would love it if you would continue to support it, even during these very difficult times, because there are some wonderful people who work on it. Um, you can go to filmstories.co.uk slash magazine. You can purchase one-off copies. You can subscribe. I'm also still doing bits for Film Stories online. So I do a British movie podcast recommendation every week where I recommend other British movie podcasts. Um, I've so far recommended 24 of them. Uh, they're all fantastic. Um, if you want to know who they are, um, then get in touch with me. I will give you a nice long list of all of these wonderful podcasts to listen to. If you are a British movie podcast and I have not featured you, there is a chance you're on my list. There's also a chance that you are not on my list. Um, please get in touch with me. You can email me. You can get in touch with me on social media. If you would like me to feature you, please get in touch with me and I will get you added to the list. Um, also for film stories, I do an iPlayer list, which is BBC. Here I have a service called iPlayer. It's um, free to everyone who has a TV licence, which pretty much everyone does. Um, and they show movies. Um, they have loads and loads of films that are available for free on their service so i update that list every week as well so thank you again to derek and laurel for joining me i guess my final question has to be to keanu uh what did you think of this episode you're breathtaking oh well thanks that's really kind of you um yeah i'll uh, i'll definitely let derek and laurel know you're all breathtaking oh shut up Call me. Movie should know.